This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Live in Dubai, I'm Eleni Jokos. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. Welcome to First Move. Now, U.S. stock futures are heading towards a lower start today, and that's ahead of the Federal Reserve's September meeting. The central bank expected to announce another big rate hike tomorrow. Dow futures down six of a tenths of a percent. Nasdaq down seven tenths of a percent. S&P also under pressure as well. Now, in New York, the UN General Assembly is underway right now. World leaders are attending the very first in-person gathering since the pandemic began. Now, today's speakers include Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and France's Emmanuel Macron. U.S. President Joe Biden is also set to speak tomorrow. Now, many of the people heading for New York are coming from the U.K., where they were guests at the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Officials in London say about a quarter of a million people filed past the Queen's coffin to pay their respects. Meanwhile, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is expected to cast a shadow over this year's UNGA. Ukrainian officials saying Russia is escalating attacks on civilian infrastructure as its forces continue to be driven back by a Ukrainian counteroffensive in the east. Moscow's proxy leaders in the Donbass region now calling for a referendum on becoming a part of Russia. Ben Wiedemann joins me now with the latest. Uh, ben, the past few weeks, Ukraine has had a very successful counteroffensive. Russia incurring losses. And now Russia, of course, trying to bed down its power, its strength through referendums. Uh, give me a sense of what's going on. Yes, what we've seen today is that the Luhansk People's Republic, uh, which is this pro-Russian breakaway republic, the Donetsk People's Republic, as well as the Russian authorities in Kherson and Zaporizhia have all announced between the 23rd and the 27th of September they will be holding referenda to decide whether to join Russia, to basically make those areas part of the Russian Federation. Now, the vote will either will be in person or online. The problem may be that in many of these areas there's no Internet, so it's questionable how the, those votes are going to go ahead, but not in doubt is the outcome, given that what we've seen in the past is that they always win. Uh, the head of President Zelensky's office has said that uh, this announcement about referenda in these four areas is what the fear of defeat looks like. Of course, recently we've seen uh, Russian forces in disarray in this area, the Kharkiv region, and we were able to go to Izium the other day uh, where we discovered that those who lived under Russian occupation do not have warm memories of that period. Help arrives in Izium, bags of barley meal, tins of food. Waiting her turn, Inessa shrugs off the tribulations of late. She's seen worse. We survived World War II when I was little, she tells me. Surgeon Oksana Karpetian hands out medicine. Sedatives are in high demand. 
They have got half of a year, six months, without any help. You can um, understand what, what do they, what, uh, just imagine what, what, what do they feel. Liberation from Russia isn't the end of Izium's troubles. Much of the city was severely bombarded before falling in spring to the Russians. There's no running water, no electricity, no heat. Crowds gather to charge cell phones off an army generator and make calls, 10 minutes per person, using internet provided by a satellite connection. Lubov and her daughter Angela are calling relatives. They want to leave. Winter is coming. People will freeze, Angela warns. Older people won't survive. They also fear the Russians could return. Nearby, the signs of their hasty retreat. Helmets strewn outside a house Russian soldiers commandeered. Breadcrumbs still on the table. Insects make a meal of fruit half-eaten. On the edge of town, the remains of Russia's once vaunted army before a monument harking back to a different time, which now seems like the distant past. Natasha shows me a newspaper distributed during the occupation. What does she think of him? I haven't thought anything good about him since 2000, she says. He destroyed everything in Russia. The paper does, however, come in handy. And of course, the experience of these people under Russian occupation is very relevant to what's going on in those breakaway regions that are going to hold a referendum. Now, it is anticipated that they will all vote in a great majority to join Russia. The problem is that once those areas are, as far as the Russians are concerned, part of the Russian Federation, uh, that brings in the possibility, the danger, uh, that Russia will declare this a full war instead of this special military operation. Elena? All right, Ben Wiedemann, thank you so very much for that update and your report. Ukraine is expected to dominate the 77th annual UN General Assembly in New York. The debate begins this hour with the first speech from Brazil, as is the tradition. The UN chief warns the meeting comes at a time of great peril for the world, with global divisions greater than they have been since the Cold War. And as you can see, these are pictures from the United Nations UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres um, addressing leaders. Uh, Richard Roth, you are a veteran in covering the UNGA. Um, and, and, you know, when you hear the words, the world is in a, a state of great peril, it just literally gives you a sense of the uncertainty, the issues that world leaders need to discuss. And, of course, the messaging, importantly, to Vladimir Putin, and importantly, the messaging towards Vladimir Zelensky. Yes, it's year 77 for the General Assembly, and following up on Ben's story, the Ukraine crisis will not be solved this week, despite the presence of over 140 uh, heads of government and heads of state. The Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov will be in the building. No planned bilaterals with major Western countries at this time. It would be a bit of a minor breakthrough if there was actually uh, talk between Secretary of State Blinken of the U.S. and Lavrov, uh, they have avoided each other at two other international gatherings. Coming into the building, what we see is a feature of the U.N. General Assembly, a parade of prime ministers, presidents, heads of state, foreign ministers. Uh, they all file in with their delegations at the so-called delegates' entrance. 
then they proceed to the General Assembly Hall, where many are now listening to the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He's got a big problem. Ukraine has really, as one Western diplomat told us, uh, turned the place upside down. Permanent member of the U.N. Security Council can't be removed. It's engraved in the charter. Uh, Russia versus much of the world. However, there are African nations that feel too much attention has been paid to Ukraine. They're not getting enough food. Uh, the uh, money, the donations to help out from major powers has gone towards helping Ukraine, not to other nations. Climate was going to be a big topic this week, education, a whole barrage of other issues. But this war involving a permanent member of the Security Council has dwarfed all the other issues. Yeah, exactly. At a time where climate change should be high up on the agenda. Richard Roth, thank you so very much uh, for that update. All right, Jerome Powell in the spotlight this week as the U.S. Federal Reserve kicks off a two-day policy meeting today. Just about everyone expecting another significant interest rate hike. All indications point to another increase of three-quarters of a percentage point, the third big one in a row, and the Fed's fifth rate hike this year. Policymakers, of course, trying to rein in inflation, which is near a 40-year high. Rahal Solomon is going to break it all down for us. Rahal, I have to say, after the inflation reading that we saw last week, a lot of people talking about a potential 100 basis point rate hike and also a lot of criticism that the Federal Reserve didn't act quickly enough when we started to see inflation rearing its head. Are they going, do they have enough tools in the box to try and temper what we're seeing at the moment? Well, I mean, interest rates certainly will work. The question is, Eleni, how soon will we start to see it work? And you're right. Now we're starting to hear yeah. uh, some projections that might we see 100 basis points or a full percentage point uh, raised to interest rates, which would be unprecedented in modern times. And Eleni, to put this in perspective, if in fact we do see three quarters of a percent today, You'd have to go back 40 years to see rate hikes go up so uh, consecutively so much. And so we are certainly living in historic times. I want to paint a picture for you of sort of where inflation is on a yearly basis. And you can see we actually are sort of trending directionally lower. We can pull up yearly inflation for you now. And you can see 8.3 percent, certainly better than the 9.1 percent that we saw posted earlier this year. But take a look. I mean, that is still historically high, 40 years, as you pointed out. But take a look at monthly consumer inflation, and that paints a slightly different picture. You can see perhaps some more encouraging news, right? I mean, you look at the last month, August, monthly inflation came in at one-tenth of a percent. The prior month, it was actually zero. So again, directionally moving in the right direction, although a lot of this was because of energy. Still, however, falling far short of what Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve has indicated that they are looking for, for clear and consecutive evidence that uh, inflation is lowering to their 2% target. Eleni, I want to take you down memory lane a bit and go back to June. That's the last Federal Reserve meeting where we actually got economic projections from the FOMC committee. And what we heard then is that uh, they were expecting the unemployment rate here in the U.S. to hit about 3.7 percent by the year end. We're already there. What I think will be really interesting today is where they see the federal funds rate ending by the end of this year, because back in June, they expected that to end at about 3.4 percent. We know the market is expecting that to be much closer to 4 percent by the end of the year. So that will be very interesting, not just what they do in terms of interest rates. That, of course, is the big story, but also where they see rates going by the, the year end. Yeah. And the messaging around this, right, Rahal, and just how much of this has actually 
been priced in. Um, I know the markets were really spooked last week. Any specific messaging, very quickly messaging that people are anticipating from Jay Powell? Look, I mean, I think as simple as I can make it much more hawkishness, right? I mean, I don't think... uh the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell is going to sort of take his foot off the brake or provide any indication that they're going to stop with interest rate hikes. So I think we're going to see more of the same and not sure that the market is going to like that, Aleni. Yeah, Rahel Solomon. So we have a lot more to talk about in the coming week. Thank you so much. Always good to see you. All right. Every day, life is slowly returning to normal in Britain as the official mourning period for Queen Elizabeth ends. We heard today that around 250,000 people filed past her coffin while she was lying in state in Westminster Hall. Nina Dos Santos is at Buckingham Palace for us. Nina, good to see you. I, we know, look, the last few weeks certainly have seen major uh, turning points um, politically and for the monarchy as well. Uh, for Liz Trust now, reality of day-to-day issues becoming oh, oh so much more, you know, on the table, I guess. And she, she needs to deal with quite a few issues at hand. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, she spoke to reporters on a plane over towards the United States to take part in the UNGA that you were just discussing with Richard Roth a moment ago. And she acknowledged, apparently, the huge contribution of various uh, members of Britain's civil service, the army, etc. This has been one of the biggest weeks that uh, this country has ever faced to try and put on the logistical challenge that was the royal funeral. And what a spectacle it was yesterday. It's estimated that four Four billion people watched this event, that 250,000 people, so that's a quarter of a million people, Eleni, stood in that famous line to see the Queen's coffin lying in state for the days that it was in Westminster Hall. And uh, about a million, perhaps even up to two million people converged upon the capital to line the streets and see her coffin go past. Now, obviously, the period of national mourning in this country has ended. The period of royal mourning has not yet ended. That ends on the 27th of September. But the fact that the period of national mourning has ended is also important because it means, as you said, that this country can get back to the business of government and uh, some really big decisions that need to be made. Remember that Liz Truss was only appointed by the late Queen just 48 hours before she died, and then now she has to forge a new relationship with King Charles III. And everybody's looking to try and understand exactly what kind of king he'll be, exactly what kind of relationship he'll have with the Commonwealth, which as well is crucial to this country's economic future. Liz Truss and her government, Conservative-led government, have repeatedly stressed the importance of those Commonwealth countries after, of course, the UK left the EU. Now, Brexit left a huge labour gap. It's left all sorts of economic lingering issues that they want to plug those types of holes with stronger relationships with other countries, including the Commonwealth. But, as you were just saying, now the business of getting back to the big deals uh, is well and truly upon this country. And Liz Truss has reportedly acknowledged that when it comes to a trade deal with the United States, Perhaps that special relationship isn't quite strong enough to nail one down for now. Eleni? All right. Yeah, Nina Dos Santos brilliantly said thank you so very much uh, for breaking that down for us. Thank you. Right. Well, Queen Elizabeth's great-grandchildren were the youngest generation of royals to participate in the funeral. Prince George and Princess Charlotte formed part of the procession behind the Queen's coffin, signalling the more prominent and evolving role they'll play as descendants of the throne. CNN's Anna Stewart reports. The youngest generation of the royal family joined in the solemn ceremonies 
to say one last goodbye to their great-grandmother, Queen Elizabeth II. Prince George and Princess Charlotte, both in attendance for the church services, mourning the beloved matriarch. The pair remain close to their mother, Catherine, the Princess of Wales, throughout the day. The two participated in the procession as the coffin was escorted from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey. And after, they attended a more intimate ceremony held at Windsor Castle. We pray today especially for all her family, grieving as every family at a funeral. But in this family's case, doing so in the brightest spotlight. The Queen's death comes at a time of change for the children. Her death was announced on the same day the children started at a new school after the family relocated from London to Windsor in the summer. The children often spent holidays with the Queen and attended her Platinum Jubilee celebration earlier this year. Both Princess Charlotte and her mother paid tribute to Her Majesty by wearing symbolic items of jewellery. The Princess of Wales honoured the Queen with her pearl necklace and earrings, the same set she wore to Prince Philip's funeral. Princess Charlotte wore a diamond brooch, a gift from the Queen, and in the shape of a horseshoe, signifying her love for horses. That passion was underscored as the procession passed Windsor Castle, where the Queen's beloved horse and corgis awaited. The day holds particular weight for the young family. With the passing of the Queen, Prince William is now heir to the throne, making Prince George and Princess Charlotte second and third in line. Now the youngest members of the family begin to bear responsibility, representing the future of the British monarchy. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Well, straight ahead, Germany is working quickly um, to wean itself off Russian fuel before winter. I speak with the head of one of Europe's biggest energy companies about the crisis. And new outrage over China's zero COVID policy after a fatal bus crash. More after the break. Stay with CNN. On the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly, expect Europe's reliance on Russian energy to be a hot topic as we head into winter. Germany, which is trying to wean itself off Russian gas, says its reserves are over 90% full. The country is getting its gas from Netherlands, Belgium and Norway. Now, as you'd expect, Enel, which is one of Europe's biggest energy companies, is monitoring the geopolitics. It operates in more than 30 countries across five continents. Francesco Starace is an LCO and general manager. Uh, Francesco, really good to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time. First question, um, do you believe that Europe is going to be able to get through this winter with the current state of its gas reserves and supply? Yes, I think the winter might be passed with uh, some, probably some uh, sacrifices, you know, lowering temperature for the heating and making a little bit of uh, savings in also some industrial sectors. We have been asked also to uh, try and avoid use gas and use alternative fuels in this particular case, coal, to just get through the winter. So I think the winter might be uh, past. The issue is we will get at the end of the winter in the springtime with all the gas reserves fully used or well used and that will pose will 
put down the problem of what to do next, you know, how we will be able to refill for the next winter. So I'm more concerned, if you want, for the 2024 winter than a 2023 one. You've also said that the energy crisis could be resolved if there, if there was a cap on gas prices, which is interesting because many people believe that this is a supply issue as opposed to just a price issue. But, you know, give me a sense of what you're thinking about supply-demand dynamics and how a ceiling could be formed. The price of gas is incre- has been increasing over the last 12 months partly, only partly, as a supply and demand balance or imbalance. But the large part of the price increase that we have observed in Europe is the result of um, an incredible volatility of the index with which gas is traded and to which prices of gas are anchored to uh, across the European continent. That index has moved not really because of clear supply and demand constraints, but rather because of geopolitical anxiety and projecting a risk perception on the gas supply that so far has failed to to break up. So we are saying the index, think about that, the index went up 10 times and it drove without the prices of gas 10 times across the Eurozone. But supply of gas itself would not only warrant that. So we think what needs to be done is let the index cool off and, and take a period of transient that will uh, cap the index to a certain level so that prices of energy would cap uh, for a while. That's something that I think is necessary and many countries think um, that we, we should try that for at least six to eight months. Yeah, and look, you mentioned anxiety. There's a general sense of anxiety. You see so much speculation feeding through into energy prices, which um, is a reality. Um, Look, I want to talk about alternatives. You mentioned firing up coal-fired power plants. Um, You've also been very vocal about, like, not saying goodbye to nuclear as yet. Tell me what's on the table right now. And I have to say, in the background, we're talking about energy transition. We're talking about the climate change agenda, which seems that some of these issues are not aligned with that overall strategy? It seems like we're, we're being derailed. Well, I think we have to separate these this two moments. You know, we have a survival phase, which is this winter, yeah. which doesn't mean that the trajectory we were going to, to pursue was wrong. Actually, it's a proof that we would have to accelerate the transition rather than rethink about it. Because if we had an accelerated uh, strategy, we would probably get out of this gas crunch uh, earlier uh, and and get off this this crisis earlier. So what we need to do is, number one, survive the winter, and number two, accelerate the investment on renewables and decarbonize at least the energy sector, the electricity sector, and most of the heating sector. Let's let's think about that. About half, and in in some cases, two-thirds of gas consumption in Europe are linked to the use of gas for these two sectors, electricity generation in heating. Both can now, with the present technologies, be decarbonized fully, and that would mean wean off the need of gas from uh, the overall European uh, demand in a large quantity. In excess, I would say, to what today Russia is exporting, has been exporting so far to, to, the, US, to, uh, to the EU. So it's a case in which the energy transition gets reaffirmed 
and reinforced and needs to be accelerated rather than uh, not the contrary. Yeah. Clearly, Look, we need to push you're, gas. You're very big in coal. renewable energy space. Yeah, exactly. That's also, this is where the next question comes in. You're, you're big into renewable energy. I want to be realistic here. We're talking about decarbonization. We're talking about net zero. How big um, can renewable energy be in the energy mix to ensure that we don't have any interruption um, in energy supply and electricity supply? I think today it is possible in, uh, in a short time, and I say short time for this, for this industry is a five to ten year period, to fully decarbonize the electricity sector across Europe. And when I say fully decarbonize, I mean a mix of uh, renewables and nuclear. And that is something that is within reach. It is within technology reach. So it, we don't need <coughs> special technologies to do that. We just need what we have today. But the depth of thermal generation that needs to be um, shut down is huge. So the time it takes to do that safely without uh, having problems to the energy supply is uh, a period of five to 10 years. Now, this crisis would probably accelerate it, but that's, that's basically possible within this time period. Taxing oil and gas companies, energy companies, do you think this is the right approach? I think it is because, uh, you know, many companies today will try to find alternatives and find solutions to this. I think gas is a very precious substance. We should use it for what it is, a molecule that is needed for chemical applications and other very special industrial processes, not burn it to heat our homes and burn it to heat and to generate electricity. That is a wasteful and expensive habit that we have to forget. All right, Francesco Sarace, thank you very much, sir. Good to see you. Um, I know you are going to be doing a lot of work at the UNGA uh, and participating in some of those discussions. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. All right. And just ahead, a deadly crash in China triggers widespread anger and stinging criticism of Beijing's zero COVID policy. We'll be back with the details after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move. Now, U.S. stocks opening lower as the Fed gets ready to begin a two-day policy meeting. Policymakers expected to raise interest rates by at least three quarters of a point again this month. Dow Jones, as you can see, down nine-tenths of a percent. Shares of Ford are falling after the auto giant warned about high costs from suppliers and shortages of parts. Meanwhile, Vaccine makers, uh, Moderna and BioNTech, also down following President Biden's comment that the pandemic is over in the United States. Meantime, in China, a bus crash in which 27 people died has sparked fresh anger over the government's zero COVID policy. The bus was taking people into mandatory COVID quarantine in the early hours of Sunday morning when it overturned in a ravine. Authorities say the cause of the crash is still being investigated. Ivan Watson joins me now. Ivan, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. Look, uh, this bus crash, again, a, a reality check for authorities in terms of their zero COVID policy and what that means in terms of reality on the ground, but also for the loss of life. Many people say it should have been done differently in terms of transporting those people. What do you have for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's some important context here. This is the world's most populous country. 
And according to government statistics, there were 629 confirmed cases of COVID in China on Monday. And despite those relatively low numbers, uh, the government is pursuing what it calls its dynamic zero COVID strategy, which involves very strict lockdowns impacting millions of people, carting off people by huge numbers to makeshift quarantine facilities, uh, and imposing uh, frequent mandatory testing on populations. And these kind of measures have been in place for months now, and they are leading to situations and cases uh, that are, frankly, traumatizing parts of the Chinese population. A deadly bus crash in southwestern China sparking anger over the country's strict COVID policies. The vehicle carrying dozens of residents from the city of Guiyang, as well as their driver seen dressed in a hazmat suit, to a faraway quarantine center. Hours later, the bus overturns, killing at least 27 people and injuring at least 20. A worker later seen spraying disinfectant on the wreckage. The bus departed the southwestern city of Guiyang shortly after midnight on Sunday with the goal of reaching a quarantine center in remote Libo County located more than three hours' drive away. Authorities say the vehicle tumbled into a ravine at 2.40 a.m., raising the question, why was it so important to rush suspected close contacts of COVID patients such a long distance so late at night, especially in a province where officially... There have been only two deaths from COVID since the start of the pandemic. The Chinese government is obsessed with eliminating all traces of COVID from the country, locking down entire cities for weeks and even months. Authorities confined nearly two million residents of the city of Guiyang in their homes starting on September 2nd. Days later, trapped residents suffering from food shortages voice anger and frustration. Where's the Communist Party, one man yells. We've trusted the party and the government. Things are worse in more remote areas. In the western Xinjiang region, a desperate mother films her children sick with fever and complains COVID restrictions prevent her from taking them to a hospital. Recording of another call for help to the authorities in Xinjiang's capital. This from a gastric cancer survivor who says he's dying from lack of food. The man, who we won't name for his safety, shows CNN pictures of his empty refrigerator. He says he needs frequent small meals since doctors removed most of his stomach for cancer treatment. And says police detained and beat him after he went out on the street looking for food. In the capital of Tibet this month, officials marched residents off to quarantine camps. The Chinese government sends suspected COVID cases en masse to sprawling makeshift facilities, where some complain of wretched conditions. After Sunday's deadly bus crash, a deputy mayor apologized and promised an investigation into the accident. But even on China's heavily censored internet, critics are chiming in. What makes you think we won't be on that late-night bus one day, one person writes. They have a point. While the rest of the world moves on from the pandemic, in China, there's no end to the campaign to eliminate COVID, no matter the cost. And let's just stress again, this city, Guiyang, in the uh, southwest of China, uh, where the bus originated from, uh, it counted a total of 37 confirmed cases uh, of COVID 
on Monday, and yet uh, again, we're hearing about millions of people living under this very strict lockdown, and then people being sent away in buses far away to quarantine camps. We don't know the cause of this deadly accident, which killed at least 27 people. But there's a saying that's been going around China uh, for months right now. You can die of anything in the country right now, but you are not allowed to die of COVID. Eleni? Ironic, isn't it? Ivan Watson, thank you so very much. Now in the Caribbean, Storm Fiona is strengthening and developing into a major hurricane, according to the U.S. National Hurricane Center. It is bearing down on the Turks and uh, Caicos Islands after ripping through the Dominican Republic on Monday. Now heavy rain and strong winds destroying buildings and homes. More than one million people are without running water. In Puerto Rico, at least two people died as rain, floods and power cuts continue. CNN's Leila Santiago reports from San Juan. Hurricane Fiona gaining strength and hammering the Caribbean with strong winds and intense rain. The storm is heading toward Turks and Caicos today following landfall in the Dominican Republic Monday. On Sunday afternoon, Fiona hit Puerto Rico, causing an island-wide power outage. By the time um, the tail leaves um, Puerto Rico, we will have gotten roughly 35 inches of rain. That's a huge amount of rain. The governor says he hopes it would just be a matter of days to get electrical service back to most customers. But one thing to keep in mind is that our our grid is quite fragile still. Um, It got fixed after Maria, but not really improved since Maria. The storm coming just as parts of the island were finally recovering from Hurricane Maria's destruction five years ago. It's been rough. We've been just working to get back this neighborhood, get it back from Maria, that everything was destroyed. Restaurants, houses, everything was destroyed. And we just, we just, not all the way back, but we just halfway back. A lot of people, more than Maria, lost their houses now, lost everything on their houses because the floating. This is the barrio, the neighborhood where the National Guard had to come and rescue people. Still a lot of flooding. I can hear generators powering the home and it is still pouring down with rain. Neighbors looking out wondering exactly what will come next as Hurricane Fiona, the remnants of it, continue to demolish this area. The family rescued during the storm now safely in a shelter. She says this was worse than Maria. She's pointing out that they've already been underwater for 24 hours and the rain is still coming down. So she's concerned about the 2,500 families that she says are impacted by this here. At least 1,000 people rescued from floodwaters. More rescue efforts still underway as emergency responders try to navigate through difficult to reach areas. In Utuado, the interior part of the island, 25-year-old Leoman Rodriguez watched this bridge come apart in just minutes and wash down the river. On the west side of the island, rainfall swelling the Guanajibo River in Hormigueros, surpassing its previous record height at 28.59 feet set during Hurricane Maria, now gauging to more than 29 feet, the National Weather Service said. The damage from Hurricane Maria still looms large over the island. We've wasted five years. So the fear of the Puerto Rican people is that history will repeat itself. Right, and still to come, an international tobacco 
giant announcing bold plans and big deals to move away from cigarettes. I'll be speaking with the CEO of Philip Morris International right after the short break. Stay with CNN. The United Nations General Assembly is underway in New York and one topic that's being addressed is the transformation of the tobacco industry. Tobacco giant Philip Morris International, which distributes cigarettes brands such as Marlboro to international markets, is working on moving away from cigarettes by investing in smokeless nicotine devices. Its goal is to become a majority smoke-free business by revenue by 2025 and recently announced major acquisitions in the pharmaceutical and healthcare sector as it moves beyond nicotine. Philip Morris International says many countries could end sales of combustible cigarettes within 10 to 15 years. Joining me now is Jacek Olchak, the CEO of Philip Morris International. Uh, So good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. You're uh, in New York for the UNGA talking about transforming the tobacco industry. I want to refer to the WHO report that was released a few months ago that spoke about tobacco poisoning our planet. And, And it basically goes beyond than just the health issue, I think, that's been dominating headlines, but the environmental impact of pollution, of water to usage and and generally the tobacco value chain. So when you say transforming the industry, what would that look like to you? Well, the first uh, 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 most importantly is to finally put the cigarettes as we know them today well behind us. And I do believe that uh, if all the parties involved, including uh, mentioned by WHO, would act together with the industry, with other stakeholders, we could end uh, the smoking uh, in the very, very short period of time. Actually, the supply chain impact of a tobacco growing is uh, not as bad as people would think. There's a lot of you know, good agronomy pro- uh, 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 actions being taken. There's a, you know, good stewardship uh, uh, about the water used, etc. But the prime impact of the, the industry, which we have the negative impact, is the, is the combustible uh, cigarettes. And I think it's a high time today to utilize the, the science and the technology allowing to take uh, smokers to the much uh, better alternatives rather than uh, let them continuing smoking. Uh, and, and yes, I, I agree with you from the agro-processing side of things. I've actually been to a few tobacco farms in Zimbabwe and seen how communities are reliant on this crop. Um, but interestingly, the pollution side of things is fascinating because you're saying combustible cigarettes and you know that the you know, cigarette butt or the, the filter is actually one of the biggest polluters globally. And that's a big point of contention where they're saying, can we get rid of it in the meantime? Do cigarettes really need it? Would cigarette companies be willing to take on the responsibility of cleanup? Where would you plug into this, given that you're talking about transforming the industry? Yes, I mean, we're working also on a biodegradability of the filters, okay? They will not improve the, the health, the negative health impact of the cigarette as we know them. However, they can address the, the, the environmental impact. I mean, this solution is not really available, so on a ready available, not scalable. But we're, you know, working hard on this one. There's also a number of initiatives we're taking in how to dispose of the cigarette buds in the way that they cannot, you know, directly go into our waters, rivers, etc. It's a, you know, hard, uh, 
hard uh, assignment for all of us. Uh, but again, I mean, uh, the, the main cause of the main negative impact coming from a from a cigarette is the smoking, is the combustion. This is where all of the negatives are, are being created when you know consumers or smokers are exposed to all of the toxicants in the smoke. And we know today that they are better, much better forms of uh, consuming a nicotine. You mentioned electronic cigarettes, they are heat not burn products, the oral category products. And I think that's the, the quickest fix which could uh, to, uh, um, very rapidly to change the, 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 the harm trajectory of the, of the cigarette smoking. And of course, you've got a smoke-free target, right, by 2025 in terms of your revenues. You're getting closer to that through acquisitions. It's been fascinating to see some of the you know, companies that you've been acquiring. They're in the healthcare space. And of course, you're also focusing on the Swiss company called Match. Um, but you importantly said that it's how do you consume nicotine in the best way possible? I want to talk about your identity, what your company is going to stand for, given that you're you know, pivoting to healthcare products and yet still focused on nicotine as a, a substance that we know is still going to be consumed regardless of, of whatever policy might come into play. Yeah, let's make it very clear, it's not the nicotine, which is that uh, cost of the harm created by smoking, is the smoking and the tar and the, all the other constituents which are being released while you combust the uh, tobacco to, uh, cigarette. Uh, so it's not the nicotine, which really is an issue here. The issue is all the other, you know, the, the, the compounds which are found in a, in a smoke once you're burning a cigarette. Uh, they are safer, they are better forms of a consumption of nicotine. You mentioned Heat Not Burn, which is our you know, flagship platform, very successfully taking people out of uh, combustible smoking. So, I mean, at the markets where about almost a third of the smokers already left the cigarettes behind them. There are oral platforms, there are electronic cigarettes. These are all much better, much better uh, forms of a consumption of, uh, of a nicotine. So we put for, us, uh, for ourselves a very ambitious target that by 2025 we should attain the 50% revenues coming from a smoke-free propositions. And we are on the perfect path to reach the target. We already have uh, 10 markets out of our global footprint that we are well above 60% of the revenues coming uh, from a smoke-free product. So this is unstoppable transformation, which we continue. And I believe one day we will have to remind people that Philip Morris International was the company which used to sell cigarettes. And we will just forget how the cigarettes look like, like we, for example, forgot how the landline phones were looking uh, 20 years ago. Interesting analogy. Yes, very quickly, sorry. Russia accounted for 6% of revenues last year. You still haven't exited Russia. It's going to cost you a lot of money. What is the prognosis in terms of, of betting that, that sale down and, and exiting Russia? Yes, I, am, you know, I have about uh, almost 30 years experience in this industry in Philip Morris and I work on a number of uh, business development measures, divergers and uh, similar transactions. I never was confronted in such a complex uh, situations as we now in Russia. So we're working on the restructuring, we're arranging our presence in Russia, but you know, if you want to satisfy all the important stakeholders, your shareholders, there is a huge value which we have, uh, which we have in uh, of our business in Russia, the various regulators, governments, etc. This is really a very, very 
uh, very complex situations. But also, you know, we, we're focusing in the meantime on our operations in Ukraine, because let's not forget that, you know, the real drama is happening in the Ukraine. You know, we had a factory in Kharkiv, which was bombarded. We need to support our people, their families and the other citizens of Ukraine. That was a tremendous effort, which we which we spending behind. Them. Yeah. You also mentioned, you know, if Jacek I Olczak, thank you very much. Good to see thank you. you. We've run out of time, uh, Jacek, but thank you so much. I'm sure we'll speak to you again very soon. Much appreciated. We're going to a short break and a smash and grab at Rockstar Games, the maker of Grand Theft Auto. Remember that? Well, unreleased game footage is already online. We'll chase the latest up next. Stay with CNN. The makers of Grand Theft Auto have suffered a grand theft of their own. Hackers helped themselves to footage from the upcoming release of the wildly popular game. In-game screenshots and videos have been splashed online. Paula Monica joins me. Uh, Paul, I mean, this is a twist of irony, isn't it? Um, But a costly one. Tell me what the numbers say. Yeah, I mean, the word theft, obviously, in the title of the game. And this is an issue for Take-Two Interactive, the owner of Rockstar Games. Their stock briefly fell about 3% yesterday morning, Lenny, after the uh, hack was uh, discovered and publicized. The shares did rebound by the end of the day. And Take-Two and Rockstar are reiterating that, yes, this is real. These are photos and videos from the upcoming game that is yet to be released. But they do not think that any data was compromised for current game users and that they're still working on the game and it will be released when it's ready despite this hack. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the footage. Is it, is it a huge compromise in terms of the, the players looking at this and kind of getting an, some insight? I mean, I think it is possible that players of the game may now have more to go on, if you will, in terms of scrutinizing what the new game might actually look like. But I think it's important that since the game isn't released yet, this may not be the finished product. I think a bigger issue is that Uber, which had a cybersecurity incident of its own over the weekend, they said in a blog post that, according to them, it's the same hacking group that was involved with the Uber cybersecurity incident that also is involved in this Grand Theft Auto leak. So I think this is just a bigger issue for corporate America writ large that serious confidential data could get released. All right, Paul LaMonica, thank you so much. The footage we were showing you is from the previous game, not the new one. Thank you so very much for joining us. That's it for the show today. Uh, Connect the World is up next. Stay with CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.